evening and thank you for joining us. Uh, my name is John and I have the great pleasure of having Dana Nichols with us here tonight. And we're going to talk about meditation, right? Yes, sir. I mean, basically we're going to cover some of the basics on even what it is and uh, your personal experiences with it and stuff. So start us off, Dan. Uh, one of the definitions I like, and this is modeled after a guy named John Carbat Zims, but his definition is approximately paying attention in the present moment in a particular way. Now, I can say a lot more than that, but it benefits me to meditate, and that's why I do it. Right. Right. Uh, and that's why a lot of people do it. And I think this is also why people pray, for example. Yes. You were mentioning that on days when you don't pray, you miss it. Yes. I can tell the, uh, <laughs> the, the rest of the day. If yeah. I don't meditate, I miss it. Yeah. yeah. I miss it. Yeah. Um, because I think, as you and I both know, we're not in the present moment a lot of the time. No. Yeah, I'm planning what I want to eat for breakfast, or I'm replaying some some encounter that I botched in the past and wishing yes. I could have gotten it yes. right. right. None regret. of us would ever do that, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so regrets about the past, yes. anxiety about the future. It's easy for the mind to go running a lot of places, um, but we tend to be most fulfilled. I'm not necessarily going to say always happy exactly, um, because we're kind of careless about what even is happiness. Is happiness just pleasure? Right. Is happiness just the absence of pain? Well, not really. No, it's not. Not really. Yeah. It's, it's, there's something other than yeah. the, the actual moment of pain or pleasure or, or embarrassment or triumph or joy. Um, th there's something beyond that. And being in the present moment, even though it sounds simple, helps us to get to something that's so much larger. A question. Yes. Your background is journalism. Yes, so sir. for your whole professional life, your mind was constantly being filled with just stuff. Yes. Sometimes stuff that you didn't even care to have in there, but it was part of your job. It was, it was my just, duty to pay attention. To stuff. Um, now that you're have are trans now you're going to school you're, you're yes I'm in a, I'm in a two year yeah. training program to be a meditation instructor. Okay. Right. Um, but how has it helped you personally? I mean, what is it? I mean, what do you find now that's really? Because I mean, okay, because you've had always had a lot of stuff going on. Here's up there. the basics. Yeah. When my granddaughter smiles at me, I don't miss it. Got I'm it. right there. Got it. And I want to tell you that those years working as a journalist, there were some heartbreaking times when I was so caught up in making deadlines that my relationship to my family suffered. Mine did. And Mine I, has two over that. And I think there's a yes. lot of us that have had that workaholic thing. Yes. And then unfortunately, work can be a lot like an addiction mm -hmm. because that sense of, oh, I'm proving myself, I'm bringing home the bacon, I'm doing all these things, can be a way of avoiding what's really important, mm -hmm. right? Or covering up suffering. In other words, mm -hmm. I'm feeling anxiety that I'm not an adequate son or husband or whatever. Right. And by working hard, maybe then I'll prove that I really am. <laughs> well, it turns out that, that working hard, it can bring in a paycheck. It's necessary. Mm -hmm. But it didn't make me happy. Right. Right. Did it make you happy? Sometimes sitting in those board meetings were anything but happy, right? No, I'm just kidding. Well, no, no. There's a lot of, there's a lot <laughs> of duty. And it's not exactly about happiness. But, but we're sold this idea that to be a success, right, if you can hold down a job and pay your mortgage, 
by the standards of our time, that's a successful life in some ways. But it's not necessarily happy. No, and I think, don't you think we've been so caught up as a, as a culture and everything is... in our quest for more of everything. Yeah. Uh, don't you think we've missed so much of the stuff that money can't buy? Yeah. You know, the money that, that you know, that... And I don't think so many people even know that they're, that they're missing it. You know, it's... I don't know, you'd have to ask them. Right. You know, one of the... One of the... In the process of doing this, I've talked to various people. Like, I talked to a woman who's a the director of behavioral health for the health district's clinic yeah. down in Valley Springs. Yeah. And she told me that there is just huge demand for people to have tools, something that they can do to help themselves because there's not enough psychotherapists and not enough medications and not enough doctors to treat all of the difficulties people are having with right. things like depression or anxiety or fear right. or addictions. Right. Right. And um, this is a tool, and for some people, meditation can be a tool that's very helpful in healing and very helpful in getting back to a more vibrant, fully awakened life. A question. In this meditation, is this a, you know, is it, for lack of a better term, let's say it's a... Um, like a Tony Robbins mantra, like, you know, in the mirror, doggone it, I'm good. You know, I mean, it's, you know, today's going to be a one. Or is it more just an abstract, calm, I mean, what, what are some of well, the... Well, I would say it's actually the opposite of abstract. Okay. This particular Vipassana meditation is actually primarily focused on what's called embodied awareness, embodied like and breathing and that kind of breathing stuff? Breathing is, okay. is the start. Okay. And I can, I can tell you a little, my gateway into this was actually just through the traditional breathing meditation about, I don't know, when was I a college student? I guess 40 years ago. I hate to say that, but 40 years, yes, you're laughing. <laughs> you've got to be close to my oh, age, Oh, we're about too. to see, yeah, right, we're about right. the same age. Yes. So anyway, 40 years ago, I was at a lovely little liberal arts college up in Oregon called Lewis and Clark College, and they have a chapel there. And even though it's a, you know, a Protestant college, right. they're very open-minded and interfaith. And so they had a guest come and give a lecture. And it was a monk in these saffron-colored robes from somewhere in Southeast Asia. Um, and I don't even know who the, what the man's name was. But he taught just the basic breathing meditation, which is just to be alert but relaxed. Usually people do it with eyes closed and to just notice the breath and to try to keep the attention focused on the breath. Now, this is not easy, of course, because we're not used to focusing on one right. simple thing for a long time. And right. so, but the thing that one learns is, okay, what's my mind running off to? And then you gently you bring, bring it, it back. back. And for basically the next probably 30 years, that was really the only meditation I did, and not very regularly, just more. When you needed it. When I, yeah. did, right, when you like, needed it, when yeah. I was crying over the sure. lost girlfriend, right. Or, or, right. or the mispromotion, yes. or whatever it was that I was upset about, or you know, frightened by something, then I would do it, but I didn't do it consistently. Still, even that little bit of work of learning to focus helped me to relax, because the whole body, if you try to focus on one thing, and it can be many different things, one thing, then it tends to help the whole body to relax right. and the mind to right. steady. 
Right. And so I benefited a great deal uh, and had some insights about, you know, the typical immature adult type of insights like, oh, the reason that I'm having no success in my relationships is not because of the other person. It's because of what I'm doing. Right. And it's my experience that's what's right. happening, right? right? I mean, those are some of the basic insights that we get as we mature, but the meditation helped because it enabled me to even be able to notice those things. Well, then uh, I lived my life and, and got married several times and had some, some of them, obviously, they didn't work out. Um, and then came the Butte fire, and Ruth and were I these, were these sequentially or concurrently? I mean, did you sequentially? Okay, <laughs> got married several times, but not. It was a serial monogamy. There was no over. There was no overlapping to make it no. even more exciting. No, and in I'm fact, just, I'm kidding. In fact, the last time that I changed partners after I had divorced uh, Joan, and I was wanting to start dating Ruth, I asked Ruth to call Joan just so that they could talk to each other and be very clear on what was going on. Wow. Right? That's I mean, very adult. You think, that's very, that's good. Well, it, it was a safer thing to do, and, and they both knew who each other was because right. it's a small world that we yes, live in, right? Yes, it is. But anyway, so jumping ahead, what got me to become more serious about meditation, I would say was the Butte fire. Yeah. Um, the aftermath of the Butte fire, there was some tension between Ruth and I, We'd had a lot of challenges in the years leading up to the root fire. My mother had gotten dementia. Her mother had gone through a surgery. We'd had family members who had had to come live with us for various reasons. Did you um, get personally affected with the Butte fire? Did um, your residents? My, we, were, we were under evacuation, and so my wife and my father, who was living at this time, and my stepdaughter and our granddaughter, who were all living in the house, all had to evacuate to Stockton. Wow. I stayed behind to work because I was a journalist. You were a journalist. Um, and that being separated during that evacuation was pretty traumatic and kind of also surfaced things. So after all this happened and we had some difficult times, both Ruth and I were independently thinking, wow, we better get serious about our spiritual lives. And so we started going on 10-day silent retreats uh, at, a, at the Northern California Vipassana Center and learning traditional Vipassana meditation. And that is a very traditional method. It's like being a monk. When you go in for those 10 days, you basically take monk-like vows of celibacy. You eat less food. Um, generally, you only eat twice a day. The, the first time you do it, they'll let you eat three times a day, but you eat very little, you know, just two meals a day, vegetarian food, no luxurious bed, very simple little um, places to stay. Um, and, and it's segregated by sex. Uh, and you basically commit to following the instructions of the teachers. Uh, and it's a traditional program where you first start with several days of just breathing meditation. And we're talking about nine or 10 hours a day of meditation. Uh, and so three days of breathing meditation, is the goal is to learn to focus reasonably well. So right. that for at least a few minutes at a time, you can actually right. help your mind. And if you, if you do it for a few minutes at a time, that's really good. Not to have unrealistic expectations. But then after a few days of that, then they introduce what's called Vipassana, which is the full uh, body scan that basically much of what we're capable of being aware of is the sensations in our bodies. And so you've learned to go methodically through your body and feel what's happening on the top of your head, side of your head, the back of your head, and you kind of spiral all the way down through your head, 
one arm. A mental CT scan. Basically, you slice it all the way down. Okay. And, and, And sometimes you won't feel anything somewhere, or sometimes it'll be an unpleasant sensation, and sometimes it'll be a nice sensation. And the goal is to kind of put the same balanced awareness on it, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, because we need to be able to acknowledge and learn to live with the pleasant things and the unpleasant things. And what's our natural impulse for living beings is to avoid the unpleasant Mm -hmm. and to indulge in the pleasant. This is why it's easy to eat too much, because mm-hmm. it tastes good, mm-hmm. right? And it's easy to uh, be avoidant, too, that, oh, I don't like that, so I'm going to avoid that unpleasantness. Well, the problem with these reactions is that's where the misery comes from, craving for the, the sweet thing that we want or, or um, fearing or loathing the th- unpleasant thing we don't want. Those reactions are the unpleasantness that comes in our lives. The thing itself isn't the unpleasantness, it's how we react, right? right? right. And so we have these right. reactions and maybe we have fear or, 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 or anxiety. And that, that sensation of the fear anxiety is what they call the first arrow. But then what they call the second arrow is how we feel about ourselves because often we're ashamed. It's like, oh, why am I being anxious? You know, I should be perfectly at ease with John Hamilton. He's a kind-hearted interviewer and, you know, is, is pretty fair, you know. Um, but, but, but then rather than blaming myself for being anxious, part of the meditation is to learn to be equanimous, to accept that's what's happening at the moment. That's the reality. How much do you think, because if you look back on this last couple of years of COVID, it's been such an interesting thing to look at group psychology and stuff because we all know that there are some people who should be worried about it that weren't. And there are those who have, they've fallen into, I mean, well, the, I guess the only other way to say it is they've basically become hypochondriacs. Um, you know, it's, it's to where they can't think about anything else. You know, it's a, um, I mean, are there any life lessons from what we've seen in society this last couple of years? Because there's been some people who, there's been some people who are just, it's, I mean. It's hard for me to generalize. I, I, I can, based on my personal experience, it has been a fearful time. Right. But. Legitimately but, so. But, but, yeah. But, well, whether the fear is legitimate or not, I still don't want to suffer, right? Right. Right. I mean, right. even if, right. like, let's say terrible things happen, like happen in some parts of the world and we have a war, the, the suffering is going to be bad enough without me adding my own reactions and making it worse, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know? Um, the, the famous story of, is that there was one kingdom in India that became a Buddhist state religion kingdom, King Ashoka. And the reason King Ashoka did this is he just had this a battle victory and it was a horrific scene because of course a battle victory means that he's destroyed the lives of all these soldiers and so there's this battlefield with the crows picking out the eyes of the yes. dead and it's grotesque and King Ashoka is kind of pondering this and a man comes walking along who is perfectly calm and at peace you know he's a perfectly calm and at peace walking through this devastation and so Ashoka talks to him and finds out he's a monk who practices meditation and has learned to be equanimous in the face of, of reality. Right. It doesn't mean that he's not touched and he doesn't recognize the horror, but it means he's no longer suffering.
because of his reaction to that horror. Yeah. And that means he yeah. has the freedom to respond. Yeah. See, and this is, I think, the key, that we all want to have the freedom to respond in, in the way that our own wisdom tells us, right? Did you ever read Viktor Frankl's book? I have not. That, some of the stuff is the crossover is, is <clears throat> the, the man's search for me, you know, his experience in the uh, um, concentration camps and right. being able to disassociate the horror, the abject horror that he was experiencing on a daily basis and focusing on somehow finding joy. Joy is probably too positive of a turn, but life. You know, to, life to be able to you know, find, you know, the meaning, you know, in the name of the book, you know, Man's Search for Me, in the, in the face of abject horror. Yeah, and, well, life yearns um, for life. Yes. Life yearns yes. for life, even in the face of horror. Yeah. Right? And, and, but unfortunately, it's easy for us to be destabilized. And some yes. people are, are even perhaps <laughs> more vulnerable. Yeah, I'm going to have a drink of water. <clears throat> we vary in our vulnerability. Yes. Somebody who's suffered... It's interesting because I've been listening to a guy named... Um, was it Bessels Kolk, that, that psychiatrist who wrote The Body Keeps the Score. It's a popular book right now. My wife and I are listening to it on audio tape. And he's a psychiatrist who's studied um, trauma victims, people who have been like molested or beaten right. up as children or right. war veterans who've seen right. horrific things, women, yes. people who have been raped and abused. Um, and uh, our vulnerability varies quite a bit, even to things like that. Um, and one of the worst things that can happen is simple neglect, is to not have a loving parent hold you and mirror your, mirror your emotions when you're a tiny little child. Uh -huh. And people who suffer those things, then when they have other traumas, it's very, very hard to cope. They and don't they have become, the resiliency right, to be able well, to... Well, they become what they... It's like fragmented. It's so so that they've had these experiences and it's in the body. And they can relive the it can be triggered to relive the trauma, but they can't integrate it in a way where they can make meaning of it and come back to their lives. Well, one of the things about meditation is it's a way to gradually, and it's difficult, but you can gradually reintegrate those parts of you that are not reintegrated. And I know, I know I've got parts of me that are not reintegrated, and I'm working on them because, and I know this because I have behaviors that I wouldn't ever want to have. You know, panic attacks at, right. at times. Right. Right. And so why do I have these panic attacks? Well, I don't yeah. know. But one of the things about meditation and these meditative traditions is it's not like Western psychology. In Western psychology, we often have the notion that we're going to figure it out <laughs> with our heads. Yes. We can figure out everything. In the, you know, well, we can solve anything. Well, right? but this is not like that. It's not, right. it's not so much a matter of figuring it out as it is learning to be in the present moment. And then when these disturbing sensations or emotions arise, learning to create a big enough awareness to hold it all and care for it in whatever way it needs to be cared for. Yeah. Whatever that is. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously it's a long process, but I'm really appreciating this book because this psychiatrist is also a meditator. And so he's used both Western treatments, you know, the medication treatments, psychotherapy, but also meditative treatments and talked about the, the benefits of them in different situations. Um, and this embodied awareness, this coming back to the body, turns out to be crucial because that's how we can rewire our brains. I mean, just think about you know, the reason we go to the gym is to 
the muscles we exercise right. are the ones that get stronger. Right. Well, the same thing, the connections that we exercise get stronger. And reading isn't the only thing. Did I tell you about reading? Yeah. Okay, yeah. maybe it was before we were on mic. But, oh, maybe so, but, yeah. So, so there's, there's long been known that there are practices that humans can do that literally change the structure of the mind. And one of the most common and well-known, which is very prevalent in our society, but not in all societies, is reading. If you teach people to read, there are measurable st structural changes. The corpus callosum gets thicker. And that corpus callosum, you know, connects different parts of the brain. It's kind of the grand central. So that can help with what we call integration, that those parts of the, the human experience that maybe get isolated and fragmentary, and therefore that we're more in danger of reacting to, can therefore be brought into the larger awareness where we can connect it to our verbal awareness and our visual awareness and our physical sensory awareness, that we can integrate those things and have an integrated sense of who we are and what it is we're experiencing. Because it's when we get surprised by something that's not integrated, that's why I have panic attacks. It's something that's not integrated. There's, and I don't know why exactly. Right. But I know right. that I have this lifelong pattern that sometimes in particular types of situations, I'll get panic attacks. And so suddenly, instead of being like a functional, competent adult journalist or whatever, I'm not. I want right. to run away. Right. Right? Right. And I'm not the only, I mean, lots of people have these kinds, and sometimes, some people, it comes out as aggression. And one of the classic symptoms of PTSD military veterans who have really suffered is fits of rage. We've been, we've all seen this. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, what would, what would you like to know more about? Well, I guess, <clears throat> What I'm, what I'm seeing now is, as we come out of this COVID, as we come out of COVID, during a normal, say a wartime scenario, during a normal wartime, like say at the end of World War II, there was an armistice, there was an armistice signed, there was the, you know, the, the surrender documents and everything else, there was, a, there was a demarcation of, this is when, you know, th there was a return to normalcy with a line with a line drawn in the sand, uh -huh. and my fear is that, and I think you see it in so many ways, is you see society fracturing, and we, in which I, we're gonna have a hard time, or a lot of people are gonna have a really hard time le letting things return to normal. And, well, John, you know, I'm not. Um, change is always confusing. Right. And there's right. lots of changes going on. Right. Things that are displacing people, housing's getting so expensive. Right. People right. can't find places to live. Yes. And I'm talking even people that have jobs can't right. find places to live. Right. 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 Members of my family are struggling with that. Mm -hmm. um, and then, then there was the pandemic, and there's been, um, I, you know, our institutions seem to be less functional than they used to be. There's a whole lot of things oh. going on, and I'm, not, I don't really want to prognosticate right. on those. Right. But, but for me, part of the way to stay um, as healthy as I can is to meditate, and if other people want this tool, to offer what I can to help them have that tool so that they can use it too. A, qu now, a question. But yes. Um, is part of that, is part of that becoming aware of a daily cycle? You know, I mean, as far as, you know, each, 
each of our day's experiences has a beginning, a middle, and the end. We don't know how it's going to turn out, or even if we'll get to the end of it. But, you know, is, um, is that part of the process of being able to have, you know, to take control, so to speak, of living in the moment of that day? I mean, is it how, I mean, maybe I asked a wrong question, or how do I, you know, it's... I'm not but, sure I'm taking control of anything except except my mind, maybe. Right. I mean, because that's, um, and I'm not even necessarily controlling my mind so much as training it, if that makes sense. I mean, if you think about training a pet, a dog, right. you're never going to control a dog no. completely, but no. you can train it to be a good housemate right. and to not cause problems. And I kind of feel the same way about the mind. The fact is, the mind is going to keep doing it's going its, to do what it wants it's to going do. to keep doing its mind yeah, it's stuff. Going to, wants to do what it wants to do. But by gently training it in habits that are more pleasant, it's going to be a more pleasant experience to be with my mind. It's going to have a more wholesome chatter, if you will, because it never stops chattering. Right. right? I guess I phrased that wrong. I guess one of the things you talk about being in the moment, and a lot of the athletes and stuff talk about this, is to where, and I think it's where we've seen a radical increase in some of the athletic performance is they're able to stay in the, I mean, you know, they're able to stay in the moment right. longer than most humans. You know, they're, you know, they're able to stay in it. You know, that's because they practiced it. Right. And, right. and it's, not, it's not a superhuman thing. Pretty much, almost anybody can do this. It's very rare, I mean, there are some people maybe for whom meditation isn't a good thing, right? But for most people, it's something you can learn to do if you want to. Right. Um, it's just right. that it takes time. It's just like going, you work out, right? I used to, now I need to start to, okay, again. Well, you know? <laughs> but you know how you get that result, and it's yes. that result that gets you hooked. It's like you go and after a few weeks you start noticing, oh, I'm a little bit more limber, or I'm a little bit easier doing this. Well, the meditation is like that, too. It's like I started noticing, oh, I can focus my attention better, right? Yes. Or, oh, I'm, I'm calmer when I have to, because the news business, you know, you get, you get interrupted constantly. Oh, it, that's what it is. Right. So yeah. it's one constant interruption yeah. after another. Yeah. And I used to get more irritated. Now I'm less irritated when I'm interrupted. So yeah. the mind training gradually cultivates better habits, better mind posture, if you will, kind mm -hmm. of a more balanced posture, where mm -hmm. I'm not as reactive and judgmental uh, of myself or even other people. I think I'm a better listener because of it. Do you think even, even though they may call it different things, it was, um, I saw a thing on Elon Musk on how some of his product, productivity is, because he's obviously, by results-wise, probably one of the most productive people on right. the planet. And he views his life, he tries to structure his days in five-minute blocks. Because his thing was is trying to structure it any longer than that was almost pointless because there would be some interruptions or something like that. But he literally structures tasks in like five-minute segments. But you can tell when it is interviews and everything else, when his mind moves on to that subject, it's there. You know, I mean, it's it's this. I don't know if that's you know, probably not meditation, but his air, he he's a very mindful guy on a task when he mm -hmm. wants to be, just a, you know. 
Oh, yeah, anyway, too. I don't know about that. We're down to about our last minute, so tie a bow on it. If somebody is uh, in need, thinks, you know, how would you recommend this for people? How would I recommend it? If you want to be happier and you have 10, 20 minutes a day, consider just training your mind to be happier, to be in the present moment. Yeah. And it won't always be happy because sometimes right. you'll have to reflect on difficult stuff. Yeah. But by being able to be present, difficult and good stuff, life will be fuller and you won't miss your granddaughter smiling. Right. I right. guess that's the bow. Yes. I mean, we only get this one life and we better live it while right. we're here, right? She's turning three at the end of the week, okay? And that's the only time she's ever going to turn three. that's the only time she's ever going to turn three. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Thank you, Dana. Thank, Thank you, you very John. much. Thank you for spending some time with us. My pleasure.